Hi everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is September 19th, 2017. The North Korean leader launched another missile last week, just after the UN Security Council voted for sanctions. I'm joined today by my guest, Lance Gatling. Lance is a 30-year member of the Tokyo community. He's well-known throughout business, the defense, and aerospace industries here in Japan. Lance, thank you very much for joining me. Nice to be here, Tim. Thanks. On the technical level, how safe is Tokyo? How how safe can people be with all of this stuff that's flying over the, the archipelago? The, um, the technical risk to Tokyo is, uh, is engendered by a number of things. There are different elements that someone would try to put together into a system that would uh, damage Tokyo. If, you, if they had the political will uh, to attack Tokyo directly, the question uh, then becomes whether they have the technical capability of doing something about it. Uh, Building, assembling, operating, launching, correctly guiding, and uh, fusing a weapon of any sort on a ballistic missile is very, very difficult. Uh, nuclear weapons in particular are very, very uh, complex. Uh, the miniaturization of a nuclear weapon is a very complex issue. The reliable fusing of that weapon is very, very complex. It also doesn't mean that a nuclear weapon would necessarily destroy all of Tokyo. They, uh, they have limited power. Uh, I once did a calculation that I could sit in my office uh, in Aoyama, and if a, the palace was hit by a, a direct attack with a nuclear weapon, that uh, I would probably be pretty safe uh, because there's intervening high ground. Now, if you're in Kasumigaseki or the mm -hmm. Diet Building, you certainly have a, a big problem, uh, but we are masked by uh, intervening terrain, high ground ridges that, that would deflect the blast away. So there, it's a very, very complex question. Uh, and number one of is, of course, do they have the political will to, to actually do that? Uh, the danger is, of course, that nuclear weapons uh, raise the risk of damage to people on the receiving end, also the perceived risk by those people, uh, even though it would not necessarily mean the end of Tokyo. It would, mm -hmm. it would certainly mean the end for a very large number of people. Uh, and then the question becomes, would, would they have the accuracy to put it where they want to put it? And would it have the effect that they want? Because they can't follow this up with a tremendous number of follow-on missiles. Mm -hmm. The United States openly admits to having thousands and thousands of warheads that can be very precisely delivered that are incredibly accurate and incredibly reliable. So they risk total destruction of the, of the North Korean regime by doing so. Uh, once again, the question is, is does the political will exist? and is that political will to be uh, exercised. I, for one, don't think so. It's not my particular area of expertise, but I'm still here, yeah. which I understand is of some comfort to the cameraman and other folks, uh, <laughs> that, um, that that's not something that's going to happen very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, very soon, rather. It would happen very quickly. It would happen within minutes of, of a launch. Six minutes? Uh, the, the time is really, it depends on the trajectory, whether it's a high, low, medium, or efficient trajectory. But they can hit Tokyo in, on a, a single-stage rocket, right? uh, Using a single-stage rocket, it turns out that the uh, distance from uh, most places, uh, logical launch points in North Korea are within 1,200 kilometers, uh, less than 1,200 kilometers to Tokyo. And it turns out that the physics with the current classes of engines that they have available uh, is that uh, the outer limits for a single-stage rocket is around 1,200 kilometers with a useful payload. It has to get there, get there reliably. Uh, and a single-stage rocket is much, much simpler than a multi-stage rocket, uh, both in terms of 
the total size, the, the number of events that have to happen for the rocket to reach its target. Um, and that is what's so destabilizing about the notion that the North Koreans might be able to miniaturize a nuclear weapon and put it on a single-stage rocket that could reach major population and centers in Japan. That's what gives everyone fits. Right. And the accuracy of a single-stage rocket is enhanced the, the shorter it is from, from launcher, is, is that really um, n not much of a consideration? The difficulty of having an accurate rocket is compounded the farther you go away. Okay. It's not a simple um, a linear relationship. It, it is compounded. Um, it goes up substantially, particularly when you start firing multiple stages. Uh, you're going a longer distance. You're dealing with more energy. You're dealing with higher velocities. You're dealing with more entry. Uh, energy on entry, which creates heat, which creates problems for the electronics. So, so yes, uh, by any means, a short battlefield rocket that had the same basic inertial guidance capability as a much more complex rocket would be very, very accurate for a short range. I see. Um, so all things being equal, uh, that's true to a certain degree. One of the more interesting technical developments that the North Koreans have been able to do recently, I understand, is that they are retrofitting some of the old 1950s, literally 1950s, 1960s, early 70s technology, single-stage Scud uh, missiles and the derivatives that the North Koreans have developed. They're, they're actually updating the inertial guidance systems to make them much more useful in a conventional battle against South Korea. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the same basic technology. It's just uh, a question of how long it has to operate, how accurately it has to operate. So... So if I have um, a rocket that's going, uh, say, 10 miles, I have a ballistic missile that's going, uh, call it uh, 20 kilometers, if I'm off by 2 degrees, it's only a, sh a short error at 20 kilometers. If I make that 2,000 kilometers, all of a sudden that error may mean that the warhead's not even effective against right. the intended target. Isn't it actually more accurate to speculate that the North Koreans are just practicing? They're honing their skills. They're, they're trying to figure out how, how to, to guide the missiles. I mean, they're, they're not even, they don't have uh, serious payloads on them yet. Well, certainly these are test flights. Um, every, every flight is a test flight. A, a country with the limited resources like North Korea has is not going to simply uh, launch, they might launch some older rockets without test equipment, but I would ex expect that the recent launches have been as heavily instrumented as they could be given North Korea's uh, technical and budgetary restraints. Um, if you think about it, in, in many ways, it's it's quite admirable in the sense that they've been able to accomplish something very technical with um, with limited access to the world market, with uh, some people helping them, and trying to indigenize, uh, trying to make as much of, of the equipment as possible uh, locally, I would expect, but also working against sanctions, working against mm -hmm. time, working against economic restraints, uh, and, and world embargoes on almost everything that they would need. If you look at the entire list of equipment they would need, it ranges from uh, aluminum alloys to uh, synthetic fibers to winding machines, filament machines, mandrels, chemicals, exotic chemicals, rocket propellants, things that they simply don't make on their own. If they do, they'd have to import entire factories in order to get the precursor chemicals, to get mm -hmm. the, uh, the complex chemical processes to make this stuff. Because you just don't go down to the hardware and buy uh, hypogolic bipropellant for a rocket. This stuff is incredibly caustic. Uh, it's, it's very dangerous to humans. And it also tends to 
what we say, um, interact energetically when they touch, they uh -huh. blow up. The, the fuel blows up. It doesn't need an igniter. It just touches. It blows up. So all of these things mean that, uh, particularly for these advanced tests, they are as heavily instrumented to provide data back to the North Koreans as possible. So then the question becomes, how are they getting that data back? Um, typically, for the Russians, the United States, uh, someone like that's firing a long-range missile, they would fire it into the ocean and have a, a research vessel, uh, a euphemistically named research vessel. For the Russians, it was often disguised as a trawler that's, that's um, receiving this data from various transponders. So the data is, is probably encrypted. Um, there's a code, so it can't be readily read, but there are people who, who exist, uh, their, their professional lives exist to decrypt that data and try to figure out what that means. So um, these have not been disclosed by friendly governments, but I would anticipate that there would be a North Korean trawler somewhere in the area. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that they could, they would follow it using a ground radar that would, uh, a, a satellite type dish, a large antenna that would follow the missile and receive the telemetry signal. Uh, it's a radio signal of some frequency. And as much as possible, do that from the ground. And that would the be other, the North Koreans watching their own. That would be the North right. Koreans. But also I would anticipate, uh, it'd be a, a logical anticipation that the United States, Japan, even Russian and Chinese would want to monitor uh, the missile launch and its telemetry to understand uh, what the missile is uh, the missile is capable of. Certainly right. they would want to know the terminal phase, what happens in the terminal phase. Is there a... Uh, is there a projectile? Is there a uh, terminal vehicle that separates from the rocket? Is there a capsule that comes off? Uh, what size is that capsule? How does it act? Is it just following a ballistic trajectory or is it somehow guided? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and try to estimate from that the total payload uh, capacity. Uh, the payload being, of course, what you want to deliver. In this case, is it uh, 500 kilos or is it 1,200 kilos, which is which is thought to be the limit of some of these missiles. If you think about a missile delivering 1,200 kilos, the North Koreans have advanced MiG fighters that have a payload of four or 5,000 kilos, and they can be used time and time again to the extent that you can maintain them. So they could send it on a, one, they could send it on a trip, come back, reload, and go. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the effort to build, to develop and field these missiles and have them operational is to actually send a pretty small amount of payload somewhere else on the planet. But uh, the, the original anticipation when these devices were built it was there was no way to intercept them. Once, mm -hmm. they were, once they were aloft, they would follow a ballistic trajectory, and unless there's something went wrong with the uh, main engine, the second, in, uh, second stage engines, the separation or the guidance somehow, that they could not be interfered with, of course. They're just going too fast. They're going too fast, they're going too far, um, too high, too far, too fast. But the, the development by the United States and, and later by, um, by Soviet, now Russian uh, equipment, uh, sorry, aerospace, def uh, aerospace and defense firms that have developed uh, anti-missile missiles that could literally hit a, a, a bullet in flight with a bullet. That's a tremendous step forward and it changes the game quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, so. For the political calculus, you'd have to ask the North Koreans or someone who follows it much more closely than I. Um, from a technical side, the, the issue is always trying to 
make your opponent understand that there is a risk no matter what they do, no matter how much they test, no matter how convinced they are of their own ability to perform the task, the task being uh, successfully fuel, launch, separate, re-enter, and explode a, a device at the intended target with a great deal of accuracy, that of a sudden you have taken that certainty away and you now insert the notion that they can in fact be stopped mm -hmm. in flight. Of course, there are, there are discussions in the United States and there's some in the common vernacular of left of launch and people, people often uh, make a mistake in understanding what the term left of an event is. It, it's a timeline. From, mm -hmm. from, from your stance, you're going from time zero to the time of an event. Um, so left of launch is, let's say, it takes the North Koreans three days to assemble uh, this multi-stage rocket on an out, outdoor platform, um, and, and it takes to fuel it to make sure everything works, and there's a time zero, they start assembling it up to three days, and then uh, there's a launch, and then it only takes a few minutes to get to a target. Um, the left of launch is the idea that you intercept before that. Uh, they're, they're, you either destroy the the uh, missile on the launch platform, or even before that, before you've actually assembled it, the, the, the notion that you know North Korea has been importing um, equipment and know-how from around the world, every place right. they could get it, advanced electronics, these materials, um, you name it. Uh, some of that they still, I'm, I'm convinced they can't make everything, so they still have to import uh, significant quantities of this equipment. You know, the, the West has looked at this for a very long time, and I uh, anticipate that the intelligence communities have not been uh, remiss in their, in their task of understanding where the money is, understanding where the technology is. And perhaps one of right. the simplest things might be to insert inferior product, mm -hmm. something that has an intentional flaw in it. Say, I give you this glass, and it's a container, and without, without pressure, it's going to sit here, it's going to be very fine, a superficial examination might be that it's, it's a perfect glass, but I know it's going to be under pressure when it's actually launched, and I've induced a flaw that's very mm -hmm. difficult to tell, and maybe the glass ruptures. Well, that could be a fuel tank, it could be a strut, it could be some electronics right. um, that aren't, aren't stressed in, uh, in the actual testing. So perhaps um, today we'll kill a couple of we will occasion the death of a couple of quality assurance engineers in North Korea that haven't been able to find these flaws before. Right, um, right. So, so at, at one point you have the anti-missile missile, which is after the launch. You also have the, uh, certainly the United States has the capability, and Japan is, is uh, mooting the question as to whether they want to obtain the capability of interdicting those missiles before they're launched. But also I would... Uh, which also could be... Interpreted as a, an act of war, of course, interdiction, right? Yes, of course. The interdiction involves. Um, uh, in this instance, I'm talking about physical interdiction, where you would take um, a Tomahawk cruise missile and destroy the launch pad. Right. This last missile, one of the reasons that it, it has uh, certainly gotten attention, not just the timing with the uh, with the vote in the and sorry in the UN Security Council to impose uh, unanimously impose, which is which is a marked step forward, which is. A, I understand is a tremendous um, uh, step by Nikki Haley, the the uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and the Trump administration is relatively unheralded. And 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 what I've seen in the mainstream media, it's almost almost unheard of that all of the members of the U.N. Security Council, because you're talking about China and Russia, also right. have voted to impose uh, these sanctions. Now they weren't the original sanctions that were 
that were proposed are somewhat watered down for that, but it is uh, it is remarkable that they that they did that. So certainly, interdict physically interdicting having a direct action against the uh, the launch pad is is an act of war because you're blowing up something in someone else's territory. What is so potentially destabilizing about the uh, the missile that was tested was that it is supposedly uh, erected and launched from a mobile platform. It's a, it's a gigantic um, diesel-powered truck that uh, was brought in from China. There pretty cool-looking truck. It's, it's a pretty cool-looking truck. If it's the one I understand it is, it's actually powered by a Cummins diesel, an 800-horsepower diesel engine from America that was sold into China market for um, mining equipment, heavy, mm -hmm. heavy equipment being transported across rugged terrain. So North Korea only has about uh, 780 kilometers of paved road. So some of the some of the launchers would have a difficult time tra uh, traversing um, unpaved roads, unimproved roads in North Korea. Do you think that Tokyo by itself has 24,000 uh, kilometers of paved road? Just the city of Tokyo is 24,000 kilometers of paved roads. Mm. So the notion that you would have a missile of such range that could be on a vehicle that could go overland. Um, Overland, as in on an unimproved road. Now, it, it, the monsoons are pretty nasty in Korea, and uh, many of these roads become almost um, un unpassable. Uh, they, you could not traverse some of these roads in bad weather. They're mm -hmm. just they're just simply uh, horrible roads, I'm sure. And this is a massive, very heavy vehicle. But if you think about the ability of the North Koreans to integrate all of those launch capabilities and the control capabilities on such a portable uh, platform. You think about their ability to uh, disaggregate that equipment and to scatter it out. And so if all you need is a concrete pad and you've got the uh, transporter erector, the, the erector launcher portion of the transporter erector launcher, you've got it in a cave someplace, and all you need is a concrete pad, you can put a lot of concrete pads in Korea um, with the size of the country. So uh, at once, this is, this is uh, impressive in terms of being able to put this on a mobile platform. It's also very unsettling in terms of being able to distribute the parts that went onto that vehicle and put them into uh, uh, hidden sites bored out of a mountain. You know, for many, many decades, North Korea bought more deep mining equipment than any country on the planet, which is pretty astonishing when you think about it, because they don't export that much in terms of uh, raw materials and mm -hmm. ores even though it is a, uh, apparently a fairly rich place in terms of undeveloped ore deposits, uh, they were buying that, it was thought, for mostly for uh, tactical and strategic military purposes. Honey, honeycombing mountains with uh, where, everything from warehouses to barracks to artillery ready. positions to entire airfields that are underground. Mm -hmm. um, so the notion that they couldn't take those elements that they integrated onto this vehicle and put it into a uh, in a cubby hole on the side of a mountain just to pull out um, is is pretty far fetched. I think it's a fairly simple thing to uh, to posit that they could do this. Now, who cares if they're only delivering five hundred kilos into downtown Tokyo and it's a conventional weapon like high explosive, conventional weapon or a chemical weapon, and it occurs, it lands you know a few blocks from here. We wouldn't know about it until it came on the news. You might hear the sirens of the first responders heading that way, and you'd turn on the TV and see what was happening. Um, the nuclear weapons, of course, change all of that. You'd know it was 
a nuclear weapon if it landed a, and, and worked a few blocks away. Uh, mm -hmm. You and a lot of other people would know it. It wouldn't mean the end of Tokyo. It wouldn't mean the end of Japanese civilization or their government. But it, was, it could possibly leave a large smoking hole in the middle of the, of the densest population. Well, it would start a war, essentially. Well, it's, but I mean, I'm not going to talk about Maxine Waters. <laughs> Say that again. It could start a war. Well, it could start a war. It would be a war. It is by definition a war. Sure. If, if, uh, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, all of the, the launches, they're practicing. They're trying to hone their skills. I mean, like you said earlier, it is remarkable what they've been able to achieve so far even, I mean, the, the sanctions weren't fully in, in place, but look at what they've been able to do, even with, uh, you know, the resources they have at hand. Well, the sanctions are in place. Bear in mind that the sanctions were in place, not, uh, not full-spectrum economic sanctions, but the sanctions against them acquiring and um, continuing to develop uh, missile technology were in place, mm -hmm. have been in place for a very long time. Uh, they weren't supposed to access that, uh, the raw materials or the know-how, and they weren't supposed to export it either. Right. Um, now, these, these last, last sanctions were not an increase in the missile technology control regime sanctions against North Korea. They are, they are full-spectrum economic sanctions. Um, in my understanding, is one of the issues is, is regarding uh, coal exports. The China, Chinese agreed to limit the coal exports, which is one of, the, one of the few remaining cash cows that the North Korean economy has, is selling coal to China. So the Chinese agreed to hold that at the rate of the last two or three years. Well, the only problem is that they haven't ever disclosed what that rate was. Mm -hmm. So they could double it or triple it and say, well, we were, we were importing 3X, and actually they were, they were just importing X. So, so there are some holes in the sanctions, but that's a, it's a typical... Yeah. progression of diplomatic sanctions. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the question is, what's left? Um, it, it certainly doesn't hurt the, the upper end of the regime in North Korea. I can't imagine it does. Right. Um, but it, it certainly is going to hurt someone on the bottom end, which is unfortunate. But you know, I'm all for hurting them rather than getting hurt myself. Right. Well, in reaction to all of these offensive capabilities, the United States and the Japanese have you know, cobbled together some sort of a defensive posture, including the Aegis system, THAAD. There's a system called the X-Band, which is, um, you know, figuring out where these uh, missiles are coming from right at launch, right? Yes, uh, the United States employs um, a system of detection, warning, discrimination, and engagement that's very complex. It starts, it starts with launch detection. There's no way to hide the exhaust plume of a, of a large rocket. Uh, it, it, it leaves a trail of uh, very hot gases strewn across the sky. So there, are, there is a system of satellites sitting at 36,000 kilometers over the equator that simply stare at the Earth and they watch such hot mm -hmm. events. And they can, uh, as a side benefit, they can also see uh, volcano er uh, eruptions, lava flows. They can track those. Um, lava tends not to move at 10,000 miles an right. hour. So it, they, are, they are optimized to actually detect and give an initial estimate of the location and the direction of a rocket launch. And also they're watching left of launch too. They're, uh, the left of launch in that instance would be uh, what the Japanese euphemistically call reconnaissance satellites, spy mm -hmm. satellites that look in visible light and in infrared light uh, or use radar to penetrate through cl even cloud cover or darkness in order to see preparations. For example, this last rocket, it was actually launched from 
Pyongyang's international airport. So if you, you know, they only have a couple of flights a day, but if you had flown in, you would have seen early morning, they rolled this launcher out, this giant truck, um, and erected a missile that was already uh, put in, put together. They erected this missile, they fueled it up, and then it takes a, a, a distinct period of time. And it may well be that, that some nation or another had a low Earth orbiting satellite that was in position to uh, photograph that mm -hmm. and to send that information down for analysis. Um, it, nevertheless, it, even though it might be a secret kept from me as a U.S. taxpayer, or you, uh, as we pay Japanese taxes, the Japanese information gathering satellites and the U.S. information gathering satellites, you know, spy satellites, as they might be called, um, the North Koreans and many other people actually know the orbits of most of these satellites, so they would actually time that mm -hmm. between those movements to see if they could successfully uh, obscure their own preparations from that eye in the sky. Right. Have uh, everybody playing volleyball. That well, sort of thing. right. But you right. can't. You cannot hide the plume, the launch plume, which is the hot gases. So yes, but the left of launch before the actual launch, there might be a, a window where you could have that. So this is why countries spend a lot of time trying not to uh, disclose the orbits and the timetables mm -hmm. on, wh on which their satellite or the capabilities of those satellites. Yet the very nature of them is they're pretty large and they're in low Earth, Earth orbit and there are amateur astronomers who usually spot these things within 24 to 72 hours, they start and they pass the information around mm -hmm. the world is, and they believe that there's a new uh, orbiting body around the Earth and it coincides with the launch that just happened mm -hmm. the week before, the day before from the Japanese main, you know, uh, that launched their latest spy satellite. So you can be, you can rest assured that the North Koreans are aware of those timetables and are trying to work between them. Um, well, I mean, even with that, I mean, it, it is a complete system. It's a, it's a huge package of getting it in low orbit, getting it in high orbit. The last time they shot a rocket uh, between Hokkaido and Honshu, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was way above the stratosphere. Nothing we have would have hit it anyway. Correct. Um, so, so the United States has has a very um, a very complex system of a system of systems. Those systems do the launch detection. They do uh, they they look at the launch sites for preparation. They look at the launch sites. They look at the launch event. Um, the X band ground based radar that you mentioned is is a U.S. owned and operated uh, radar in northern Honshu near the Sea of Japan. It's focused on. Uh, North Korea for these exact purposes. So they get mm -hmm. an early warning and then they'll focus the energy down very, very finely to watch and to, to detect and track that missile. Um, without that warning, it's it's difficult for them to focus the energy correctly to see that missile uh, because it just doesn't reflect well. It's, you know, it's a, from a side, a side profile, it's a round device. It's not reflecting a whole lot of energy. So they need to focus that energy down right. very, very finely to get the best discrimination. They continue to track it. So the United States has multiple opportunities to detect, uh, track, analyze the, the trajectory, make sure everything is working, and, and then to send something yeah. up to engage it. And, and depending on the, uh, on the altitude and the speed of the actual missile, uh, there are certain systems that can engage, others that cannot engage. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the, Jap the Japanese only have a couple of pieces of that entire spectrum that the United States has. Now, they certainly exchange information with the United States. The United States will provide information. Uh, the Japanese are building new systems. They want to build their own space-based infrared sensing system uh, to where they would have their own early warning. So they can yep. cue their radars. They have their own radar. It's called Gamera. Um, one of the Japanese electronics firms built this, this giant, um, giant radar. That's a good that's, name. Yeah, it, it, well, it's, it's named for that because it has a giant dome on the back. It looks like the back of Gamera, the the, right. the uh, mutant giant turtle uh, shell, and and um, I think some child named it that or whatever. But anyway, so they don't, but they don't have that early warning from the infrared system. So they they depend upon that in the United States, and uh, apparently the United States gave them that warning immediately. Um, mm -hmm. It's now part of the integration of these systems. Uh, certainly the. Maritime Self Defense Defense Force and the U.S. Seventh Fleet have a very close operational relationship, and between them, with a number of Aegis ships, they could have the Aegis ships in place, watching the missile. Um, but the Aegis anti-missile missile is called the SM3 um, Block One. Only works outside the atmosphere. It doesn't work inside the atmosphere. It can't see anything inside the atmosphere. It leaves the atmosphere, and then some. Uh, it actually dumps off the nose cone, so it uncovers a sensor that can actually see the target. Until then, it can't see anything, so it it has to engage um, another missile outside the atmosphere. The THAAD is an uh, endo-atmospheric, it's not exo-atmospheric. Okay. Endo-atmospheric, it works long-range within the upper, upper stretches of the atmosphere. The final defense um, that we depend upon in Tokyo is the Patriot missiles. Uh, Patriot, I believe it's a Patriot Pack 3 that would be As put... Coming in. As they're coming in. As whatever's left of the missile, whether it's just a warhead or the entire single-stage rocket coming into, back into the atmosphere. Um, but it, it only has a slant range, I've, I've read in unclassified uh, media, a uh, slant range of about 20 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So it has to know well in advance that there's something coming. Right. So uh, like a last ditch, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's and, very and, much a last ditch. And these are much larger rockets than what's on the Aegis. The Patriot? Yes. Uh, all things being equal, uh, fast rockets are big rockets. Mm -hmm. uh, the next generation Aegis rocket being co-developed between the United States and Japan is called the SM-3 Block 2A. It's a 21-inch missile all the way down. Right now, it's, it's only a 13-and-a-half-inch missile. But the largest missile that will fit inside the, the honeycomb, the, the firing cells inside an Aegis ship, is a 21-inch missile. So it has more propellant, it can go faster, it can reach a, a target farther away, it can inter intercept a target that's moving faster. Uh, the, the Patriot Pac-3 missiles are not huge, um, and that's one of the reasons the range is fairly limited, but it's also uh, endo-atmospheric. It's, in, it's only useful inside the atmosphere mm -hmm. because the missile itself is initially controlled by fins and it's controlled by some... some um, propulsion units on the side of the missile that okay. steer it back in. That does the same thing at a longer range. Uh, all of this, once beyond the, the very basic outlines, gets complicated and classified. But you imagine that the Japanese have certain pieces of it. But they don't have the same problem the United States has. In order for um, an ICBM to reach Seattle, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C., it has to go at a tremendously high speed, which means it's a different problem, mm -hmm. uh, and you need a different solution for that. Right. Well, apparently the main target of their affection right now is Guam, perhaps Okinawa. 
Well, the last missiles are intermediate range missiles. They they don't have the range yet. They have not demonstrated the range for a missile to reach um, the, the American homeland. The, sure. The lower 48. Um, and that was the point, I believe, the the clear technical point of this last launch was they would they launched it in a direction that would aggravate only, the fewest, only aggravate right. the Japanese. Let's put it maybe that the way. Russians. It wasn't a very neighborly thing. No, the Russians weren't upset about this. I'm, no, I'm, apparently not. But the, it landed closer to Russian territory than it did to the Japanese territory. Oh, it was it landed due east of the southernmost tip of Hokkaido. Um, which was kind of threading the gap between the large population centers in uh, Sapporo and Aomori. Mm -hmm. If you were in Hakodate, about 280,000 people, you wouldn't be happy. But this is literally beyond the ability of a human to understand. If if they had not been told by the government this was happening, they would never know. Mm -hmm. So the the missile probably went higher than the the regular um, orbit of the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Not just a little bit, but like 100 to 200 kilometers higher than the orbit of the International Space Station. That's a long ways up. And no one in Japan would know anything about it. And there's one, there's one aspect of this that, that is often misunderstood. And people say, we should have shot it down. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we shoot it down? Well, it's not, it's not flying, for one thing. It's actually going on a ballistic trajectory, just as if you threw a rock or uh, I use the analogy, a water balloon. If I throw a water balloon at you um, and I loft it at you and it's the skin, the, the balloon burst in mid-arc, the water's still going your right. way. So it's not like an aircraft. It's not in the atmosphere. If I take a wing off an aircraft or if I take out the engines or the aircraft fuselage is blown in half, it will, go down. It, it will stop its forward motion and it'll drop almost vertically. If you intercept... A, uh, a missile in flight, one of these devices flying outside the atmosphere, it's going to continue flying in the same mm-hmm. direction. It's just not going to work. It's mm-hmm. going to be in pieces, um, and still you'll get all of whatever it was. If it was chemical weapons, they'll burn up on reentry in the atmosphere. If it's high explosives, they, they would not go high order. They would burn, but they would not explode. If it's a nuclear weapon, you're still going to have the fissile material okay. scattered around but it's a much smaller problem than if it goes off. Right. Similarly, if it's a two-stage rocket, that first stage that is dropped off, it's going to follow that trajectory too. So this this nonsense about, you know, um, you know, if you're in the field when the rocket is flying over, you know, cover your head. I mean, it's it's there's nothing going there's not going to be any debris there, well, t- right? Well, typically the first stage of a of a two-stage rocket falls off. It it completes its burn. Uh, the main engine cuts off. And it's usually precisely timed to cut off. And then it separates by explosive uh, bolts and devices that separate it. And there's still enough, it's still low enough in the atmosphere for its forward progression to stop very quickly. Uh, so it will, in fact, fall to Earth. So and in the event of Japan, it's going it to fall in the Sea of Japan. It's not going to fall on Japan. It can't. The first stage probably can't even, even if they try, they couldn't put the first stage to fall on Japan. It's going to fall in the Sea of Japan. In fact, my anticipation is that some of these first stages that the North Koreans have used for these tests have been recovered by the United States and Japan. The, the North Koreans, I doubt if they have the technology to recover them from the seabed. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, there are reports that once they realized that the United States and Japan were actually uh, using commercial ships to go down and recover uh, these uh, first stages so they could analyze 
all of it. Where right. do they get the materials? What electronics are they using? How have they avoided the sanctions all these decades? Um, my understanding is that the North Koreans started placing explosives in them and blowing them up after they've done their job. Uh -huh. It might be the second stage that you're thinking about. Uh, it will not go into orbit. It's not going fast enough to go into orbit. It's not going 17,000 kilometers an hour, but it's going quite fast. So it will fall back to Earth someplace later. It mm -hmm. might stay in space for a period of time, but will eventually decay, come back into Earth. Much of it will burn up. Typically what's left is really heavy, uh, like titanium structures. I mean, if it falls in your apartment, it would it would ruin your day, but it's not gonna bother anybody in the building next door. It's not gonna blow up or anything. It's just an inert chunk of metal. Well, that's really enlightening. Thank you very much, Lance. Is there anything else that you wanna talk about, tell our viewers, that you're doing, that you're involved in. I've been watching you on, on uh, TV these last two weeks. You've really been on fire, and I appreciate you being on the show. Well, I've actually spent um, a lot of time over the years explaining these technologies to, to laymen, to journalists, to academics, and folks. And I think it's very important that, that people understand that it's, it's not the end of the world, mm -hmm. uh, but the threat, is, uh, the threat is substantial. It's meant to be substantial. Um, I, I don't have a, a real good track record of looking at things from the view of other people. I look at the technology of it. And I think it's very important that uh, voters, mm -hmm. taxpayers, and, and policymakers understand the limitations of these technologies, understand the effort that it's taken to get here, and, and understand that uh, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of doubt on everyone's side. Mm -hmm. uh, do, Will my offensive system work? Will my defensive system work? If they fail, what's the outcome? Um, and some of these things we really don't want to know. So it's well worth the time to have a Terrific. diplomatic solution, but uh, my concern is, is that some people are heading towards a, a more kinetic solution. Right. Listen, uh, I, I hope you don't mind me giving you a, a shameless plug, but you've been in Japan for more than 30 years. You're a West Point graduate. You've been involved in defense and aerospace ever since I've known you, and we've known each other for a long time. I also understand that uh, you're a judoist, you've been uh, teaching for a long time, and you're working on a book that describes this generation of, of self-defense and how it was uh, uh, initiated here in Japan. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do appreciate uh, your interest in this. Sure. Um, I run the, uh, the U.S. Embassy Judo Dojo. Uh, we celebrated our 61st uh, year this year. It's uh, one of the oldest in Tokyo. We have records going back to 1904 that American uh, women uh, in the embassy were taking judo, some of the earliest records of women taking judo. We now have people that are third and fourth generation. Um, I've been working on a book for probably 15 years when I realized that the, uh, the histories, the, the written histories uh, of Japanese martial arts are incorrect. Uh, there was a lot of uh, intentional obfuscation of the history during the occupation. So it became kind of an obsession of mine. Mm -hmm. And I hope to have the book out before the Olympics so people that come to Japan and people that can enjoy the martial arts around the world realize that the uh, the reality is much more complex and uh, and pretty surprising and is not what at all what they think. So. All right. Thank you very much, Lance. What an interesting and enlightening conversation we've just had. Please stay tuned to Tokyo on Fire. We're going to continue to delve into what's going on with North Korea and what you can expect. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. It is September 19th, 2017. It wasn't but less than four weeks ago that the DP, the Democratic Party, 
ejected their leader, Ren Ho, and put in a new one. And since then, all hell has broken loose. Michael Chuchek, welcome back. Well, it's great to be back. It is a season of upheaval, isn't it? It's a season of upheaval, and we should. It, it's really hard to stay within the boundaries. Uh, but we really need to talk about the state of Japan's opposition, mm -hmm. and in particular, its main opposition party, the DP. Right. Now, it was going mediocrely under Ren Ho. And at, for reasons that are not entirely clear, the party didn't don't do so well in the Tokyo Metropolitan District elections. It didn't get completely shut out, but it lost a few seats. Everybody was expecting that. They didn't get near, hit nearly as hard as the LDP, but... A month after, basically, the, this result, then the party leader decides she's had enough, and they open up the door for a party election. That was the activant, though, wasn't it? I mean, they just didn't do very well in the Tokyo metropolitan elections, and in, in an anticipation of forming a better coalition, I mean, the fractures were already beginning to, to show within the three factions that make up the DP, they decided uh, new leadership is, is at hand. It, but the thing is, it was the, it, there was a long hiatus between the results of the election and the decision by Renho to go out. There was also the fact that the, the Tokyo elections are not an election that tests the basic new, new paradigm, which is cooperation with the Communist Party, which was the, the force that was driving so much turmoil mm -hmm. inside the party. There right. are, was the, the hard right group inside of it who were totally against this idea of cooperating with the communists because they're the communists and they didn't really have an alternative in terms of whom, whom the uh, party would ally with, but they were just against. Mm -hmm. they, they, were, they weren't for it. And then the, the main secretariat, which was for it because it was their idea, uh, but the Tokyo elections didn't test that. But Renho, with her problems having to do with her dual citizenship, and then the problem that she's a member of the House of Counselors, which means that no member of the House of Counselors has ever been considered seriously for the, for the prime ministership. Yes, the person has been voted in the voting, but you, someone really has to be in the House of Reps. And the House of Representatives members kind of hold them in low esteem as well. That's right. But the House of, House of Representatives has the priority. If there are two different candidates who get elected under the Constitution, the House of Reps selection becomes the prime minister. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was trying to move out of the House of Counselors to the House of Reps. No member of the DP was willing to give up his or her seat in the Tokyo area. Uh, so she had no place to go, and she just called it a day. Mm -hmm. um, and then they had this rushed process of trying to find a new leader with going Yukio Edano versus the eventual winner, Maihara Seiji. Right. He slipped on within 24 hours of being appointed as yeah, their he, leader. Yeah, he won a significant victory. He, he, he did stomp down the, the, the mainstream candidate, Edano, who had been a member of the Secretariat. Uh, but in an, in an inexplicable uh, act that we've gone over, you know, he picks Tamao Shiori, uh, a, a, a radical of the Secretariat, who, had, who really was given the Policy Research Council uh, headship. It has a very strange name and it's not worth going into, but it's the Policy Research Council for, for the DP. Uh, and she, she was then transmitted immediately to Secretary General, right. a two-term member 
of the diet being the number two in the party. Party rebelled against this, and within hours of the party rebelling, a whole set of articles came out, and we talked about this, uh, in, uh, uh, outlining her extramarital affairs. Right, that came kind of on the heels of that, though. I mean, it was just like insult on top of injury, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, was just, and then she was, and then, you know, I mean, we've seen a lot of precipitous falls, right. you know, in, in Japanese politics, but nothing on this scale. Mm -hmm. From party number two to out of the party by Wednesday. She left the party. I mean, she had credentials, and you said the, the party was in turmoil. I don't think the party was totally in turmoil. I think certain factions were in turmoil, and she had her supporters too. I mean, there was a strategy of why she was selected. That strategy, once it became rolled out, just collapsed immediately yes. within two days. And, and Maihara immediately responded by appointing Mr. Oshima, the person who was in charge of his election campaign, as the new secretary general. And how, much, how, much, how many legs did that give him? Uh, two weeks? Ten days? It's not enough. It, what, the, their, the whole point of electing Mayahara was to reunify the party. There had been some defections. There have actually been uh, 19 defections uh, That's so far. serious. Yeah. But some of them, that's, that's if you include Tamao's resigning from the party for, for indiscretions. But there had been defections along the way of about a dozen on mm -hmm. policy grounds. And he is pulling the party back to the center or to the right or whatever it is. He's the, of the right wing of the party. He is taking it away from the, the, the center left. Uh, was supposed to staunch the bleeding. Right. But the bleeding has continued. It has continued, and he's become a target himself. And, it's just be, and, and the, the, the really peculiar thing is, now that uh, all of this said and done, the alliance with the communists is still... Up in the air. Uh, still, it's still up, now being talked about as, yeah. as, as, a, as a possibility. Now, if I were the member of the Communist Party, I'd say, hey, you told us you hated us, and we have to go, now you want us, we're gone. <laughs> you know, if you don't love us, you, you, you know, don't tell us that you like us. Right. You know, it's just, the, I would, the communists should just run their own campaign and just run with that. Well, Michael, look, if anybody is wondering that um, if, if Japan is, is not a blood sport where politics is concerned, you have to wonder when uh, the issue of uh, some sort of a tryst in North Korea with a North Korean mistress, that, that story oh, broke. Oh, that story. That broke, and it's just the nastiest, I mean, old news brought up at this time. I mean, it's, it's a blood sport. It is, and uh, the, the, uh, the knocking down of Maehara uh, is relatively easy. He's, he seems to have, he's, he's never been a truly loyal sol soldier. He's always been carping from the sides, even at, when the, the DPJ the former name of the party, when the DBJ was at its height, he was always on the side saying, we're not looking at constitutional revision, we're not looking at increasing defense spending, and whining away, mm -hmm. and, and doing a little bit of the uh, to be or not to be, you know, Hamlet speech every once in a while, should I leave the party on a principle or should I not? And, and, and now he's in charge of the party. Right. Now it's, it seems only fair that Justice comes to him, you know, in, 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 and he's he has defectors left and right, and 
there are people who are who are out to get him. Right. Well, it's it's also uh, initiated a series of interactions here in Tokyo that are going to reach a critical mass. We didn't talk about this. We talked about it a little bit, but pretty much discarded it uh, two weeks ago when we last filmed about the possibility of a snap election. And all of these pieces are now coming to the fore, and the prime minister has apparently decided. That, well, yes, indeed. We'll, we'll, we'll probably need to get into that into an entirely different episode. The thing is about the opposition, and, you're, and you don't, when you talk about the opposition, it's not just the DP. Aside from the communists, everything is chaos. Mm -hmm. Everybody is either in the dumpster, like the socialists, who somehow still get to be called a party, even though they don't even have five members of the diet. Uh, there's the, 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 the liberals under, under Ozawa, who suddenly has returned from the dead as, yes, a, he has. as, a, as a viable source of wisdom. And indeed, Maihara is talking to him and the socialists to form a grand union, uh, the old grand union of the DPJ ruling right. uh, coalition of 2009. And then you have the emergence of potentially a new party coming up. That's right, with, with, with Wakasa and the party of Tomin First, right. now becoming Tokyo, Japan First, who are the main supporters of uh, Prime Minister Koike and, and vice versa. She's their big their big gun and their big wheel. But none of them is worth a darn when it comes to an election. Right. Uh, they don't have the candidates in place, they don't have funding, they don't have, a, they don't have a party platform, they have either new or completely untried leaders in the case of Wakasa. Uh, it's just, they are completely out of it. And it's, been, it's going to be really strange, no matter what happens this fall. If there's a fall extraordinary session, that, that was one of the things that's been worked out, is that there is supposed to be, on September 28th, after the UN General Assembly, a day at least when the parliament, the diet, is supposed to open, mm -hmm. and that's September 28th. What happens after that is completely up in the air, uh, but the, the earliest prediction for Wakasa's party to even get together is on that day, <laughs> September the 28th. That's their, that's their schedule. You know, say, you really need to be together on, to, uh, on whatever you're doing before the first speech right. opens, you know, right. before the emperor gives his, his, his speech. Come on. I, no, this is going all crazy. Well, with the main opposition party trailing blood in the water, I mean, uh, it looks like people are hungry for the members who are going to be fleeing or being ejected from that party to join their parties. Well, there are so many members of 16. the DP. Yeah, well, there's so many, well, there's so many members of the DP who come from other parties or who have, have dallied in other parties, like, like Matsuno, right. who you know, left the DPJ in a huff, joined Ishin, then left, then Ishin flew, flew apart and he rejoined when he came back, he, he demanded that the name of the party be changed, and it was changed from the Minshuto to the Minshinto, though it's Democratic Party in English, both of them. Uh, they're, 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 this, this is a, not a unified bunch of folks who all see a common destiny. Mm -hmm. And yep. even if there's some kind of coalition that's put together, either as an operative coalition in a caucus in the terms of a diet session, or as an electoral coalition, they're just nowhere near where they need to be. We don't have much time. Um, the prime minister has called for an election. 
It'll happen within two months' time, and we should devote uh, actually an episode to that. Okay, let's do that. Let's see what the Prime Minister does to take advantage of this situation. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. It is September 19th, 2017. What in the hell is going on? The Prime Minister just announced yesterday that there will indeed be a snap election within two months, Michael. That's it. I have egg on my face. Last week, I was telling people coming to Japan. It looks good on you. Thank you. It's, it, it, it's best on this side. <laughs> uh, we didn't, we didn't talk about it. I mean, we, we mentioned that there was a possibility, there was a rumor of it, but it was pretty much discounted. And it seemed almost out of the question when the LDP's constitutional headquarters just laid out a program saying, this is the way this is going to happen for the rest of the year. We're going to introduce legislation in the fall extraordinary diet, which it hadn't been decided when it was going to start. Uh, we're going to put out the draft pieces that are going to be put out there to show the people what we're going to do in terms of constitutional mm -hmm. revision. It will be decided on during the regular session, and then boom, we're going to have a joint referendum on the Constitution and House of Representatives election. Sometime next year. Sometime next year. Right. And, and it'll be a, a, what, each will feed off the other. Okay. And that was a, that was a reasonable narrative. Sure. Considering that they have the two-thirds majorities now that in both houses of the House of Reps and the House of Counselors that they need under Article 96 of the Constitution. Right. Uh, that, they'd get past that, and they'd had a year to debate this, so no one could say, you're, you're, you're pushing, pushing this through, through yes. at an incredible pace, and you're just trying to railroad us, and then the people would actually probably react very poorly. In the referendum. In the referendum, because right. unless you have a full year to debate, you're, you're simply, you're asking for it. Right. And that seems so reasonable. The because only, because according to you know, what everyone says about Mr. Shinzo Abe, constitutional reform is the be-all and end-all of his existence. And when the number two in the party, Mr. Komura Masahiko, says this is what we're going to do, you would think right. that's what you're going to do. And then Saturday happened. Well, the, the other thing that was on our radar last time we filmed was the by-elections in October. 22nd, yeah. And that is the stick that's in the mud right now, and that is the target that the Prime Minister is focused on now. So let's talk about what are the dynamics that go on inside the Prime Minister's, maybe his thinking, or, I mean, he decided this is a big deal, and he is the one that decides. Okay, he's looked at the opposition parties and seen they're in utter disarray. If he waits... It's possible that the Japan First group will put together some kind of party that is able to dominate the Tokyo area. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of votes. Right. Uh, and he give already, them six he, months, he, for he, example. He, yeah, if you give him six months, he got utterly humiliated and, and took a huge hit in popularity after the July elections in Tokyo. And his, his percentage points have come up. His uh, popularity. The, his popularity has come up. Now, that was due to the cabinet reshuffle almost entirely. Because he also his his posture with North Korea, his well, we, staunchness. Well, I hope I hope that's not the case because he's he's a paper tiger. He has nothing in terms of military capacity. He can't force China to to impose more strict sanctions. He went overseas. That helps. Oh yeah, and he he talks to Don on the phone all the time. Right, uh, Donald, I need your your support. You need my support. India was a great trip. Okay, so all of these things are, are collecting. His, his shine is starting to come back. Okay, his shine is coming, starting to come back. So they looked at that, uh, the secretariat as a whole of the party. Uh, but 
he personally looked at that and saw that, okay, I'm back in a position of strength. Why give the opposition any chance to do anything? Mm-hmm. Now, there are some really good reasons not to. Uh, the first of which is he just did a cabinet reshuffle. Right. And even Yamato, Yamamoto Ichita, who's appeared on this program, who's an LDP member, has said, man, are you nuts? Are you saying that that was all for nothing? You said you wanted to watch these people in their jobs do the great job that they're going to do, and you take them out of that in right. a month? Yeah. And you said also, this is all Yamamoto. This is a member of the LDP writing in his blog. He says, man, you promised that you would answer questions about the Moritomo Gakuen and the uh, Kake Gakuen scandals that you were willing to bring it out in in the extraordinary session. Now you're going to cancel the extraordinary session and hold an election? You You better know what you're doing. Yeah. And well, it also adds adds value to clearing it out so that he can. I mean, there are 160 uh, viable members who are waiting for a uh, a ministerial portfolio. But, but he went through the whole the you song can read sure. his own song and dance of assembling this cabinet, and it's a good cabinet. Mm-hmm. And it the people responded to that. His popularity ratings have everything to do mm-hmm. with him putting Konotaro into the cabinet, putting Noda Seiko sure. into the cabinet, taking rivals and bringing them in and tossing out people who are his friends, like Inada, uh-huh. and, and, and saying, I, I, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. That, that act of contrition. Yeah. He, and he was, he says, I, I have, um, you, there are things about that I've done you probably don't understand. I have a responsibility to explain them. People responded to that yeah. kind of supposed blame taking. Mm-hmm. Now, I see, a, I see an opening, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Well, also, from, from my perspective, I see that there's probably a fear that you better do it now before anything bad happens, before any minister goes off, off subject, right? Because um, there's a long time between now and the, uh, the, the ending, well... In first, September next year, his term his as president term, right. ends, and three months later, the, the term election. of the House of Representatives right. ends. So cut, a bo- you know, cut off the House of Representatives short, give them an election, the LDP wins in a huge landslide again because there's no opposition to speak of, and it resets the clock. Right. They don't have to have another election for another right. four years. Right. Well, they don't have to win by a landslide. They've got 191 members now. In their coalition, they already have two-thirds of the lower house. Well, they, right. have, they, have two, they have 288 in, in, in the lower house and, and, and then 35 members of the Komeito, and Ishin is virtually a member of the coalition mm-hmm. now. So they've got, a, they've got the two-thirds majority there. And, and even if they lose a couple of seats, they're still okay. It's true, but the, 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 the whole... Okay, one of the things that he's always managed to weave in is there's a reason why I'm dissolving the diet. It was the consumption tax. I'm putting off the consumption sure. tax. What do you think, public? And everybody's talking about Taigi, the great issue. And the people who are opposed to this early dissolution, mostly members of the opposition, but you know, even, even people like Yamamoto Ichita are saying, what are you going to make as the excuse? And the biggest issue is, in fact, North Korea. Mm-hmm. They, uh, the biggest point where... And you're seeing it from all ki- all sides, all of the opposition figures. Even and, and and I was reading Hatoyama Yukio, 
God knows why I was doing that, this morning, and he's saying, look, what the deal is, is the, the, you know, creating a vacuum right at the time when, when the United States... Not a good sign. Yeah, not, when the United States is talking about all options on the table, the DPRK is setting off thermonuclear devices and a missile just this mm-hmm. weekend over Sept- on September 14th, a very long-range, intermediate-range ballistic missile, well past the range necessary to hitting Guam. This is the time when you dissolve the main... I mean, the Constitution says the Diet is the supreme organ of of power Mm -hmm. in the country. It is the decider, okay? Not the Prime Minister, not the Cabinet. They they execute. But the, the, the supreme organ of power in... The, in the country is the diet. And you're saying, take a vacation. You know, we should have an election. A lot of people are saying, you, that is so nakedly self-serving. Sure. That you better know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, the other point too is that maybe uh, his calculus is North Korea is a yawn. They're not going to do anything. They're going to shoot some things. They're practicing. They're trying to expand their, their knowledge base, but they are not even going to do anything. I've got a breather here. I should ram it home now so that I can be prime minister again. Yeah, he, he said just basically that. We're, we're, in, we're actually going to be in a lull. I'm going to take advantage, get that out of the way, because later on, things are going to get hairy. Mm-hmm. Things are going to get hairy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's not the phrase that he used, obviously, but, but th- this, is, this is the lull. Mm-hmm. A thermonuclear device and a, and a 3,700 kilometer shot on a, that's the lull? Jeez, uh, what's going to happen is, is the, the first reaction that I have. Right. Now, historically, uh, the diet has actually gone through an ability to have elections that is incredible. Uh, during World War II, in 1942 even, in, in the height of the war, they did not suspend diet proceedings, they had a general election and con- in, in, in midst of wartime. And indeed, opposition members, one is hard, you know, if you think of Japan as a totalitarian state, there were opposition members who won seats in that diet. So that there is a tradition that he can look back to, it's pre-war, but nevertheless, of, you know, uh, you know, you know keep calm and carry on. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, keeping calm is something that nobody is doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, for me, you know, he, he has a responsibility to, to be the calm in the storm. But we saw that in terms of his public diplomacy, the New York Times, do you, have you, I mean, the, the op-ed that right. he had. Oh, my goodness, if he wanted to encourage the United States to be even more intransigent and, 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 and more provocative, he couldn't have done more. Right, right. Oh, you know, there is no negotiation, no dialogue. We must, you know, tighten sanctions. And there are, there's a country, there, according to statistics, there are countries in Asia who are still doing business. Yeah. You know, that kind of aggr- passive aggressive. Putting on his big boy pants. Kind of, yeah, that you right. say, you're not, you know, no, and now you're going to throw the country into chaos. Great. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know if it's really throwing the country into chaos, but having another election, I mean, it's an expensive venture. It shuts down everything for the, the three weeks that the election is going on. Yeah, it's going to be a really short one. It's going to be probably const as close to the, the legal and constitutional limits in terms of time mm -hmm. between the, the calling of the election, the uh, announcement of the candidates, and the actual election day that is probably going to be right to the wire if you know, maybe a day extra. It's going to be incredibly rushed. That will, of course, reduce the, the period of time when there's a vacuum, sure. Mm -hmm. But still, all how are you supposed to run an election saying, oh, uh, all of you out there who are here for the rally, uh, we've just gotten a J alert. Everybody, we have to take shelter. <laughs> Uh, and then we'll have the speech an hour later. Uh, bye. <laughs> you know, uh, that, is that what's going to happen? You bet if it's up in the Nor Tohoku region. Right. You know, that's going to look bad. Fun and games for Shinzo Abe trying to figure out how he can stay in power yet one more term. Please stay tuned. We're going to continue to watch this.